Genesis chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, open them there. If you don't have a Bible, get one off the shelf. If you've been here for a while, you know the drill. If you're new this evening, you need a Bible, just the way it is. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 begins, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This ancient document and we call the Bible, this library, really, of 66 books is as beautifully arranged and organized as the four seasons. I love the four seasons of the year. I love just when I start to get tired of one, we're coming into the next one. Not that I ever get tired of the Word of God, but what this, what this book does is bear a supernatural symmetry. And I think if you study the Bible, you have a sense of that, you know that. The more you study the Bible, the more mind-blowing it is. It is symmetrical in ways that we can't even see. God has written into his word beyond even our human perception as we read the words of his word. And I'll give you some examples to start out tonight. Mind-blowing stuff. So... I don't know, wrap a turban around your head or something because someone's mind is going to blow in just a minute here. <laughs> you know the number is seven is significant, right? We all know in the Bible, that's a number that comes up a lot. We see seven everywhere and it indicates divine completion. It's a, a complete number and again, it is everywhere. So if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you don't have to, but you can. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ which we've covered, we've looked at previously, a while ago actually, but it is supernaturally stuffed with sevens. Sevens you wouldn't even see, or sets of seven, what we would in English call heptads. A heptad is a set of seven, like a dozen is a set of 12. Well, think of it this way. Let me give you some of these. The number of words in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter, chapter 1 just the number of words are exactly divisible by seven. Number of words in the Greek language. The number of both vowels and consonants. The number of words beginning with vowels and words beginning with consonants are all divisible by seven. The number of words occurring more than once or in more than one form or in only one form are all divisible by seven. Somebody sat down and figured all this out, but it's legit and you can look it up. The number of nouns, the number of non-nouns, the number of names and the number of nouns that are not names and the number of male names are all divisible by seven in the Gospel of Matthew in that first chapter genealogy of Jesus. And finally, the number of generations listed there is exactly 21 divisible by seven. What you have in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew alone, just in this little spot in the scripture, is 14 different features of seven, 14 different heptads. Well, 14 is divisible by seven too, isn't it? 
What Chuck Missler says about this is the odds of complying to just nine of these heptatic features, remember there are 14, but the odds of complying to just nine are over 40 million to one. So looking at it this way, taking 10 minutes per draft and working on a genealogy like this, 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, it would take you 3,000 years to work it out. In other words, it's impossible. It's, Matthew couldn't have done it. The genealogy, the toldot, if you will, remember there are 11 toldots, what became of or what happened to's in Genesis, and then there's a 12th toldot, the genealogy of Jesus, the what happened to Jesus. But the entire genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is summed up as follows, Matthew 1 verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. From the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14. Again, all divisible by seven. And by the way, just to add something into this, the number of words used only by Matthew in his entire gospel, words nowhere else in the, in the New Testament, just found in the gospel of Matthew, it numbers 42, divisible by seven. Six times seven, right? Did I do my math correctly? Yes, it's 42. Now, granted, Matthew was a tax man, so maybe you're thinking the guy knows how to run the numbers. He's just figured it all out. Listen, the only way that Matthew could have done this is if he had copies of all the other New Testament books and wrote his gospel last. That's the only way he could figure out the exact words to use that no one else used is if he had the rest of the New Testament already before him and went through and went, oh, no, I'm sorry, Luke used that. I got to use a different word here. And the reality is that, you know, he didn't. If Matthew had sat down there with the entire New Testament before him and, and had woven in a set of words all divisible by seven, not used by anyone else. And the problem with this is every New Testament writer would have had to have written their book or letter last because the same is true for them. Did you know that? Every letter or book in the New Testament uses words not used in any of the new, other New Testament books that are exactly divisible by seven. Not making it up. This is a reality in the scriptures right before us. Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Jude, Paul, the Hebrew pastor, all use words that are unique to their particular New Testament writing. And each set of these words are always divisible by seven. That's not a New Testament phenomenon. It actually began in the beginning in the Genesis record. And we see, we see traits like this throughout the Bible. In the Toldot of Noah, which begins in chapter 6, verse 9, and runs through chapter 9. So all the way down to the end of verse 29. In Noah's record, listen to the following. The word make, as in used as in building the ark or making the ark, make an ark of gopher wood, the Lord said, that word appears seven times. The word corrupt appears seven times. Clean animals come in in sevens. God speaks to Noah exactly seven times. The word enter or come, we looked at that word bow, is used Seven times. The root word for to destroy or to wipe out is used seven times. The word covenant appears seven times. Water appears 21 times. 
divisible by seven. Flesh appears 14 times, and Noah's name appears exactly 35 times. These are all sevens or divisibles of seven. Now, as far as I know, Moses authoring the first five books of the Bible, what we call Torah, didn't have a calculator and a thesaurus when he sat down and began to write. What I'm telling you is this is the signature of God. You are not looking at holding in your hands or reading just another book. It's unique to God. He shows up throughout. He's expressing himself. And even in the things I've shared so far, he's expressing his order, his symmetry, his, his perfection. And by the way, Jake pulled me aside Sunday morning and shared this one. I, I didn't even figure this one out. If you think about how many days Noah and Pham were aboard the ark, you get a total of 378 right? Divide that by 54 and you get seven. So even the amount of time they were on the ark is divisible by seven. I mean, psh. and this is the word that we enter into. And again, this isn't the stuff of fairy tales. This is actual fact. This is notable and seen in the Hebrew language and the Greek language and, and has been clarified and supported. It, it's marvelous. Now, with all that in mind, we come to chapter 9 tonight, and we come to what's called the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant, a unilateral, unconditional, covenantal promise that God makes with Noah and a young humanity. I'm going to give it to you in three parts. We'll look at three sections going through chapter 9, and part 1 is what I would call the cover of blood. The cover of blood, verse 1. God bless Noah. And his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So here post-flood, after the flood, we have fear terror, conflict. We have the implication here of, for the first time, mistrust between man and animal. Now it's going to cut both ways, and that original, Edenic, harmonious peace is gone. It's over. It's lost, if you will, with the advent of the flood. And I, hang on a second. See, this is going to happen every Wednesday night. Rick has to find something that annoys him, something he has to do. I love our kids singing, but not while I'm teaching. How you doing, Jake? <laughs> it's all lost. Now, think about that. In Eden, outside of Eden, sometimes we think Adam and Eve were trapped in Eden. No, they weren't. They, when they went out of Eden, the world was still beautiful. World was still paradise. There still was an, a, an interplay, a harmony, a peace, if you will, between mankind and animals in the world. There wasn't all of this fear. Part of the reason why I said several weeks ago that they didn't eat meat, why they were vegetarians, is animals didn't have that intuition or that instinct to fear man. It wouldn't have been fair. Deer walks into your yard and you just go, lunch. But now, now the fear of man has been placed into animals. Now, the deer's going to skitter off the path 
when it sees you coming. And so we see that and we think that's, it's a shame, it's a loss. Guess what? It'll be back. That kind of harmony. Bible says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. How many of you parents with young boys would let them go out and play with a bear or a young lion? Also, the cow and the bear will graze and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. You won't have to buy rubber snakes for your kids to play with anymore. You know, or those ones at Disneyland, you know, the big stuffed snakes? We used to buy one of those every year. Hayden always liked those, so we bought a bunch of those every year. And we had them all in what would eventually be David's room. And David and Naomi and Anna Marie, they, they came home from Africa. And they came into the house and could not figure out why we would have stuffed snakes. Or stuffed monkeys. Anna Marie to this day hates monkeys. Well, you would too if they stole your lunch. But all of this will be harmony. I, it's so interesting to me. The weaned child, so you talk a little two-year-old, little three-year-old running around, will put his hand on a viper's den and no parent's going to be worried because we'll be back to absolute perfect peace. Total harmony. But post-flood, God offers a new dietary plan that includes meat, and yet his compassion for creation remains. He gives all of his critters this new survival instinct, but watch this, verse four, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Those of you who like rare steak, Cheryl can't eat it if it bleeds. She just can't. She can't even look at it. It has to be like blackened and crunchy, you know, beef jerky, that's okay. <laughs> you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. God declared right here, blood is life. Well, duh, we all know blood is life. You know, humanity didn't realize that until 1628. It took us that long to figure it out. Thousands of years before we understood, God's already declaring, look, I just need you to understand blood is life and I want you to respect life. I want you to respect that blood is life. Now Solomon, he expressed this idea poetically. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse six, he said, remember your creator, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. He's describing human anatomy in a poetic way, and he says, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So we get this beautiful poetry, but long before Solomon, God declares, blood is life. Blood is life. The Bible is way ahead of the scientific curve. Once again, because it wasn't until 1628 that English physician Dr. William Harvey Detailed was the first to actually detail the properties of blood and the circulatory system running throughout the human body. That blood goes everywhere and brings life to the body and is life for the body, that life is in the blood. And here God already had said it. It's life is in its blood. Don't eat flesh with the blood in it. But this word isn't just scientifically sound, it is also prophetically profound. 
Because over in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, I'll just read this to you. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. God now repeats what he said to Noah immediately after the flood. He says, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood or nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. You can't be blood eaters, blood drinkers because blood is life. And you've got to respect that. And I've given it to you as a profound picture. And here's the deal. God, think about this. Why did God create a lamb? Why did he create a lamb as it was? He created the lamb as the perfect picture of his son, ultimately. Why did God create blood? He could have made us any way. He could have made air run through our veins, which might have been interesting. But he gave us blood. Why blood? Why that picture? And then why the blood, the life? And why? Because God was painting a picture. God was setting a standard. Way back in the Noahic covenant, long before the Mosaic covenant, to, to teach humanity to learn the value of blood and life. And blood early on is God's most profound picture for atonement. You sacrifice the critter, on the altar, you pour out that blood and the blood pictures a covering of sin. This is how ugly sin is. When the blood drains out of the sweet animal, the sweet little lamb, and all that beautifully snowy white fur goes crimson red. That's how ugly sin is. The blood pours out, the blood, it atones as you sacrifice. It's atoning, it's, it's covering over your life. But you Bible students know that it could only atone. That is, it could only cover sin. It didn't make sin go away. There was a temporary fix. And every year Yom Kippur would happen again and they would slaughter the animal and they would sprinkle the blood and the sins for the people would be atoned for once again. And yet there was also the sin offering and the burnt offering. The offerings of the people of Israel, if they sinned, they could come to temple and they could offer the offering to draw the blood and have that covering for their sin. But you know, it just never fully worked. The blood of animals was always looking forward, always anticipatory of, well, the Hebrew pastor says it well. Hebrews chapter 10 Begin in verse 10, and we read this on Sunday. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time forward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you. That's me. We enter into the sanctification process, the one-time offering of the blood of Christ. And so early on, God explained the life in the blood. And even going as far back as the Noahic covenant, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. God is already beginning the process of explaining the value of the blood that ultimately would drip down the sides of the cross as the blood of Jesus became the perfect, not just atoning sacrifice, but propitiation, cleansing and washing 
for our sin. Don't eat flesh with the blood, he says. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast, he says, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of the man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth and abund- populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And honestly, I-, I think Noah and the missus obeyed. You know, considering world population today, they did what they were told to do, and it's continued across time. People have been fruitful, they have multiplied, we have populated the earth, just as God commanded in the Noahic covenant. But this is interesting. Because in the same breath, in the same declaration, almost in the same sentence, God, in speaking about populating the earth, simultaneously established a fundamental building block of social order, capital punishment. Now, I want to say something very clearly to you all. Whatever you think, whatever your opinion is, or my opinion is about the death penalty, about capital punishment, God established it, and he did it right here. Whoa, that's Old Testament. Okay, hold, hold on to that thought. Whatever you think about the fairness or unfairness, I've had debates even with family members, debates about the issue of the death penalty, and the debate always comes down to one thing. Well, what if we unjustly or wrongly execute someone? I understand that can be a problem. That can be an issue. That's not the question, though. The question is, what does God say about capital punishment? What does God say about the death penalty? Regardless of my feelings about it one way or another, or the rightness or wrongness of how we handle it, or mistakes that we might make, or major failures, what does God say about it? Listen, this is pre-law. Okay, so you you can't say, ah, it's law of Moses, that's just for Israel. No, this is pre-law. This is the Noahic covenant. It's a covenant that God made with all mankind. You shall, if, if a man kills a man, his blood is required of him, you shall take his life. That, that's God's standard. Well, I don't like that. Well, okay, give it a chance. I mean, don't try it right now. <laughs> it's pre-law. The, the rabbis call Genesis chapter nine the Noahide law. The Noahic covenant, the Noahide law And it's what they consider the law for Gentile humanity. If you're not Jewish, and I think that's most of us in here, if you're not Jewish, they say this is how a Gentile can be righteous before God. The rabbis would say, we keep the Mosaic law, you keep the Noahide law, the Noahic covenant. That's that's yours. And it contains three aspects. You might just note these. It's reproductive, be fruitful and multiply, It's dietary, you can eat meat, but don't eat the blood. And it's punitive, don't kill another human being or your own life will be required as punishment. That's the basis of the Noahic covenant, the Noahide law. Of course, the rabbis take these three things, reproductive, dietary, and punitive in the law, they take these and they stretch it into 68 separate laws, which if you wanna get into that, you can. It's just what they do, build law upon law. But in this Noahic covenant, God declared, the Lord declared the death penalty 
as the necessary deterrent against murder. And he's talking about murder, by the way. There is a killing that is justified and legitimate according to scripture that's not considered to be murder. Which is why in the Ten Commandments, ultimately when you read that, it says thou shalt not murder. Which is different than kill. It's a different word. There, there's justified killing, as in warfare that is righteous and just before the Lord. We'll get into that when we get to Exodus. But this idea of if someone murder, we're talking about a first degree murder. Because even second degree and even manslaughter, there, there are prescriptions for that later on. But in the Noahic covenant, the death penalty is the deterrent. For what? For a world in which the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God set up the standard deterrent for murder. If you murder, your life is forfeit. And it does make a person stop and think. It does set a standard. And by the way, it's a standard for all crime. You can walk down a ladder. If murder receives capital punishment, if it receives the death penalty, then the next thing on the list is going to have a certain standard of punishment and on down. But if murder slips down now to life in prison, guess what? Everything else slides down until you're releasing criminals for nonviolent crimes. Hey, you know what? So he was selling drugs on the street. That's not violent. Where's the rationale in that? Selling drugs to someone who gets stoned and hurts somebody. This is a violent crime, in my opinion, but, but it all starts to wash out. You know what the average length of time for a, for a murder sentence in America? Average length of time served because of the whole death penalty debate and the death penalty is, has been set aside by so many states. Average length of time for someone who murders someone in America, 17 years. 17 years even though the person murdered probably has been robbed of 30, 40, 50, or 60 years. It's not just, it's not fair. God set this standard. Now, some of you are looking at me like, you really believe this stuff. You're a death penalty guy. Pastor Rick's brutal. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Here's the point. It's not that God has a bloodlust or that he's bloodthirsty. It's that God set human life to be of the highest value, the highest value. It is such a high value that if you take another life, you're giving up yours. It's God's way of saying, don't do it. Don't mess with it. From the earliest life in the womb to the oldest life just this side of the tomb, which some days I feel like that's me. Human life, when it is highly valued... We're missing this. We're missing this in our country. Congress just this last week passed the first Animal Welfare Act in American history. Yay! They didn't go far enough, according to some, because they're not protecting laboratory mice. So they got to go back, I don't know, go back to the drawing board and figure that out. Now, now I'm, I'm with you on the fact that I think animals should be cared for. I, I don't like reading the stories in the news about the house where there's 150 cats dead and 75 in squalor. I, yeah, that grosses me out. I think that's horrible. I treated Reggie well. When he went, he had to go. It's just the way it was. He didn't murder anybody. That wasn't the point. But this Welfare Act for Animals was passed in our Congress, and they can't or won't stop the killing of innocent life in the womb. I don't get it. I don't understand. God said, wait. 
You're so worried about animal life. Hey, it's great for you to be compassionate about animal life. And you should be, Mary. It's all right. You know, love your cats. Love your dogs. Take care of animals. Be good to animals. Don't be mean and brutal and all, you know. But, but human life is way more valuable to God. It's on a much higher standard. And here's the point, because I said this is a societal issue. This is a building block for a healthy society because where life in society is valued, that society flourishes. Where life in society is devalued, civilization falls, and it has in every country in history. When life becomes less, when human life becomes less valued, becomes equated with animal life, or even falls below that, the society will fall. God said, this is the high standard. Don't kill. If you take blood, your blood is required. And again, there's a domino effect where, where we cast out, we say, we're not going to support the death penalty. We're not going to have it. And there's a domino effect that rolls right out. Remember the song of the sword? Remember Lamech? When he said, Genesis 4, 23, Ada, Zillah, my wives, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. What many people don't understand and what God is trying to establish in this Noahic covenant and on this fresh new world, if you will, this fresh earth, there are dark, demonic forces working to wreak havoc and to increase lawlessness and draw out the sin nature in people. That is still active. It's active today. It was active then. We have a sin nature. There's a demonic presence. This is all going on. And so God draws a firm, clear line at human life. Human life matters. Yeah, but boy, I don't know. If someone kills someone, I get that that's horrible. Hey, the rabbis teach that if you kill one, you kill a generation. They're right. Because the one person murdered will no longer ever be able to reproduce and have children who would have children who would have, all those are gone. All those people will never now exist. It's that serious. God drew it right there. You do not take human life and the person that does will pay for it with their life. Now, people will say, well, isn't that just an Old Testament thing, capital punishment? Turn in your Bibles to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13 in the New Testament. Go ahead and go over there. Romans 13, which I, just to give you a little background, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. That's why we call it Romans. And the church at Rome is under the thumb of a Caesar by the name of Nero. So Caesar Nero, crazy Caesar Nero, who ultimately would take Paul's head. He's, he's the one who's in power as Paul is writing this. Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. What? I can see people diving over the pews on that one. What did he say? Are you kidding me? Nero? Fuck. Subject ourselves to what? He doesn't stop there. He says, for there's no authority except from God. Huh? And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, 
Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. This is from a Paul who was in and out of prison. <laughs> and who never fought it, by the way. Note that he never fought it. He spoke very clearly of his offenses, so-called. He declared exactly why he was in these chains. Read the last part of the book of Acts. But he never fought going to prison if that's where God wanted him to go. If that's where the governing authorities demanded of him, that's where Paul went. He says that rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise for the same. So when you're flying down Highway 20 at 78 miles an hour and you're looking over your shoulder and all around for the police, that's your issue, dude. You want to not fear being pulled over and ticketed? Do what I do. Set the cruise control. I've learned this. Pastor Rick can't afford another ticket. So when it's 40, click, I'm just going 40. People are honking behind me, mostly pilots, I think, because they're used to going fast. No offense, guys. And, you know, and then when it's 50, click, 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 I'm going 50. And I have no fear. No fear. Pull me over, Mr. Police Officer. I'm fine. It's good. Do you know how fast you were going? Yeah, 50 miles an hour, bro. I got no fear. Then he says in verse 4, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword note that it does not bear the sword for nothing for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil not not okay an avenger that brings wrath isn't Captain America it's not Iron Man we're not talking about the Hulk the avenger that brings wrath is the governing authority and literally speaking he's talking about the death penalty the sword that he bears, the sword of the governing authority is speaking of the death penalty. The right to bring that. And in verse 5, Paul says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, that is the threat of punishment, but also for conscience sake. See, we, see, we serve the Lord. We trust a God who is higher and above and over all of that. And we know that he is the one who's truly on the throne. And so Jesus, Jesus took this straight to the heart. Jesus talking about this same idea, Matthew chapter five, verse 21 said, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. True that. I added the true that. He said, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus says, here's the human standard, don't kill. You know what my standard is? Don't hate. Don't be angry. Don't be bitter toward. Don't be caustic. Don't kill relationships. He goes to the heart. And for the heart of the person who says, but I, I can't go with it, I can't support the death penalty. Capital punishment, I, I'm sorry, my heart won't go there. 
because the death penalty is unloving. Matthew 24, 12 says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. There is a standard of law. God set it up. He knows how we tick. He knows how we think. And again, for those who struggle with the death penalty, and by the way, I have in the past. I don't now because I read it and I go, that's God's standard. So I will abide by God's standard. But for those who question it, let me just ask you a question. Do you accept that it's in the, Mo the Noahic covenant? Do you accept that capital punishment is part of the Noahic covenant? Anyone reject that? Okay, good, good. Then you're reading the same Bible. When did the Noahic covenant end? It hasn't. It never did. This is for all humanity, for all time. This is a standard that God established following the flood, and it never ceased. There's never a point in Scripture or in time where you can show me that God says, and by the way, with that whole Noahic thing, we'll move on to something else. It's still in play for humanity. God's word stands. By the way, this is Psalm 138, verse 2, where he says, I have magnified my name according to all my word. Or David says that, you have magnified your name according to, or even above your word. Sorry, I got it backwards. I have magnified my word according to all my name. I have magnified my word alongside or above my name. That's how valuable God's word is to God. So when he speaks it, that's it. So the cover of blood. Take a life, your life is required. Part two in the Noahic covenant in our study tonight, the colors of the covenant. The colors of the covenant. Picking up in verse eight, then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, and of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God says, note it, he says it three times, twice right here before you, my covenant, my covenant, my covenant. God set the standards in the Noahide law as reproductive standards and dietary standard and punitive standards. But then, then after setting those standards, saying this is, this is what I want for you, this is what I want you to do, but then he turns around and he calls this my covenant. He doesn't say this is our covenant. He doesn't say you do these things, I'll do this thing. What I'm telling you is the Noahic covenant is unilateral and unconditional. God is saying, I covenant with you that I will never flood the world again. That's my promise to you. That's my guarantee. We gotta talk about covenant for a minute. Psalm 25, verse 14. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Psalm 25, 14, talking about covenant in the Bible, says the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. And we need to know his covenant and understand there are seven in the Bible. 
seven covenants. And as we're right up here at the beginning, I was reading through this and thinking, do I want to talk about this now? Do I save this for later? No, no, we got to run through these at least. Get a sense of and a reminder of, maybe a refresher for you if you know this, but the seven covenants of God we find throughout the scriptures because these covenants reveal to us the Father's heart. They are significant for knowing God's heart, understanding God's love. The word covenant in the Hebrew scriptures is berit. And berit means a formal binding or agreement or pledge. It's a formal binding agreement. What's interesting about the word berit is it has in its root the idea of cutting. In fact, you may have heard the phrase and we'll talk about the fact that they cut covenant. That a covenant involved or, or had the picture at least of a cutting process. And what people would do entering into this binding agreement, if it was a serious, important agreement, is they literally would cut animals into halves and lay the halves, one on either side, and they would walk this path of blood saying, this is how serious this is. This is what you'll look like if you break this covenant. <laughs> you know, it's, we're gonna make this a serious oath between us, and we are now bind, bound, bound to our agreement and in a highly significant covenant moment, God did this. He told Abram in Genesis 15, verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. He cut covenant. Definition for biblical covenants are what we might call sovereign proclamations from God placing him into a relationship of responsibility either with a man, a family, or a nation. And we see this in all of God's covenants. And as with the Noahic covenant, in every single case but one, God's covenants are unilateral and unconditional. And that is vitally important because a lot of Christian theology gets a little wonky on this. God's covenants, except for one, are unilateral and unconditional, meaning they're, they're not, if, if you do this, I will do this for you. They are, I'm doing this. Regardless of what you do, this is my binding agreement with you. This is what I'm doing. When he talks to Israel, Israel, this is my promise to you. The promise that God makes to bring Israel back into the land is binding on God, not on Israel. It's not based on what they do or what they don't do. Listen to these through. We started off, we already saw the Adamic Covenant, the covenant made through and with Adam. Genesis 3, 14 through 21, right after the fall, God set up these rules. He said, life will be hard, but there's hope, in essence. Man will work, women will give birth. Ultimately, a seed of woman is gonna crush the serpent. This is the covenant. It's unilateral. It wasn't based on what Adam or Eve could do. It, it, he talked about what they would do. Gonna be working the land, Adam. Gonna be bearing children. It ain't gonna be fun, Eve but you're gonna have a seed in a woman that will crush the head of the serpent and I will do this, God's promise. Unilateral, unconditioned, the Adamic covenant. Second covenant, the Noahic covenant, which we're in right here, Genesis 8, 21 through 9, 17, proper is the Noahic covenant. But all the way back, even before the flood, you remember God said, first time the word covenant's used in the scripture, Genesis 6, 18, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. That's all you're gonna do, Noah. You're gonna go in the ark. I'm gonna establish a covenant. I'm gonna make myself 
a binding agreement with you, not conditioned on you. And so the very first time we see covenant even mentioned in the Bible, it's a one-sided agreement. You have the Adamic covenant, one-sided, unconditional. You have the Noahic covenant, one-sided, unconditional. You have the Abrahamic covenant. We'll get to that in Genesis chapter 12. So in short order, perhaps before the end of the year. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this. Abram, for you, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. God gives the Abrahamic covenant. What does Abraham do? Nothing. He just receives it. The fourth covenant is another covenant God makes with Abram. It's called the land covenant. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21. We'll look at that also soon, Lord willing. But in this covenant, God lays out, he has Abraham look over the whole promised land and says, look at this, check this out. I am giving this to you. It's not based on what Abram does or does not do. God just says, this is yours, bro. I'm giving you all of this. And what he describes goes all the way from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, a distance of 300,000 square miles. And I've mentioned this many times before. 300,000 square miles, Solomon at the height of his kingdom, the largest Israel ever was, was 30,000 square miles. But God gave them 300,000. They're short 270,000 square miles. What's the deal? God's going to keep this promise. A day is coming, my friends, when Israel will be spread across that entire covenant promise God made with Abraham because it's unconditional. By the way, did you read this week? <laughs> Our president has done it again. How many times have people said that about President Trump in the last three years? Our president has done it again. He has now upturned 40 years of U.S.-Israeli policy, and I love it. I love it. This week, the Trump administration declared that Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria are no longer illegal. That's huge. That's a God move. And you didn't understand, if you look at a map of Judea and Samaria, Judea mostly tends to be on the west side of the Jordan River. Much and most of Samaria and the mountains of Israel are on the east side of the Jordan River. And the West Bank then covers all this area in between that was both Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. That's the political name that the media gives to that area that Jews today still call Samaria. And you have all these Jewish settlements. Why? Because these Jewish settlers are saying, but God gave us this land. We've got the title deed. It's right in here. And so they move in and they set up shop and they do good things and they actually hire Palestinians and they create work and they're innovators and they do fantastic things that actually bless the entire world. And the world says, illegal! And the Trump administration this week says, nope, not anymore. The U.S. now supports Israel and all the settlements that are in that region. What is Trump doing? I don't even know if he knows. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm absolutely serious about that. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And God is at work here. And God is establishing and reestablishing all of his promises because they're unconditional promises that God will do that don't depend on what we do. Don't depend on what Israel does. People who say, and I heard it this week, well, Israel had their chance and they blew it. They lost it. Man, you don't know our God. 
If you would say that Israel is out on their ear because of what Israel did, you do not understand the covenants of God, the seven covenants, and six of which are completely unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. The land covenant, unconditional. God made a sovereign, unconditional covenant promise to Abram for the land through his lineage, not through Ishmael, by the way, but Abraham to Isaac, he reaffirmed it. To Jacob, he reaffirmed the land covenant. It is a covenant for the people of Israel. This is your land. This land is their land. This land's not my land. Or the United Nations. I, I could go on. <laughs> Fifth covenant. Along comes the one conditional covenant in the Hebrew scriptures, and it is the Mosaic covenant. It is an if-then covenant for the Jewish people alone. It spans Exodus through Deuteronomy. We're about to get into that once we move through the rest of Genesis. And that whole section details God dealing with the people of Israel, giving them the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and saying, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a law. You keep my law, you live in the land. You violate my law, you're out. What happened to Israel? They were out. Problem is, he's got one covenant on the one hand that's a little umbrella over the people of Israel saying, okay, right here, you guys do what I say or you're going to be kicked out of the land. But there's a much bigger covenant overarching that called the land covenant where God says, but I'm going to give you the land anyway. And by the way, when you get kicked out, I'm bringing you back. And someone might say, well, yeah, but he already fulfilled that. He brought them back from Babylon. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, he says, I'm going to bring you back a second time. I will bring you back again. Which is why the whole existence of the nation of Israel in the world today is an answer to biblical prophecy. And it's so stunning because we look at this and say, he did it again. He did it the second time. He's continuing to do it even as these settlements are now being recognized. I still, I'm, I'm buzzing on that one. It's just amazing. So the Mosaic Covenant is the only one that's conditional. But after that, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 17 is the Davidic Covenant. Another completely unconditional covenant in which God promises to David, I'm going to build you a house. And in and through that house will come and has come and is coming the eternal king. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Or Wonderful Counselor, if you want to read it that way, that's fine too, because he's both. He's wonderful, he's counselor, and he's a wonderful counselor. Mighty God eternal father, prince of peace, all names for Jesus Christ. The Davidic covenant, that's the sixth one. Five out of six, unconditional. And then comes my favorite one of all. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, we come to what's called the new covenant. The new covenant, and it's already been referred to tonight once. The new covenant Jeremiah chapter 31, you're roughly toward the middle of your Bible, maybe a little bit slightly to the right. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. And again, allow me just, you know, be patient with me because going through these covenants, this is, this is foundational. 
to our study through the Hebrew Scriptures. You've got to understand book to book to book these seven covenants. The new covenant, God speaks to Jeremiah at a time when Israel is falling apart. Israel is under siege from Babylon. Israel is about to go into the 70-year captivity. That is Judea, Judah, the kingdom of Judah. Actually, the northern kingdom of Israel is already gone, already wiped out. You've got little Judah fighting for its life, holed up in Jerusalem, about to be carted off into captivity. And the Lord says, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Interesting, both houses, even though there isn't a house of Israel at this time. Remember, Israel's wiped out. I'm going to make a covenant with both houses. And he says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. This isn't like that one. How is it not like that one? That was conditional. That was based on in part on what they did. They had to enter into the agreement with God. Well, now he says, but this is the covenant, verse 33, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The new covenant. And I'm gonna do this, he promises, in this hour of their despair. I'm gonna bring about this unconditional new covenant and Jesus Christ on the night of his betrayal at the last Passover passed around the cup and says, drink this, it's the new covenant. Here it is. This is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it, every one of you. He would say, as often as you drink this, remember me. And so we take the cracker, the bread, we take the juice, the, the representation then of the blood and the body. We do this all the time at the bridge because I just can't get enough. The new covenant, the promise, the ultimate, I'm doing this. Now you might say, well, whoa, wait a minute, though. He's, he's talking here to to Israel, right? This new covenant's big. This new covenant allows for the grafting in of non-Jews. Paul talks about it in Romans 11. The Hebrew pastor writes about it in the book of Hebrews. This new covenant, it, it draws us in. It's still for Israel. Don't miss that. He's talking to Israel about Israel and their future, guaranteeing, I'm gonna do this. You will be my people again. There's a kingdom promise, but we're caught up in it. The new covenant, as Jesus said, in my blood. So just in case I didn't make it clear, every single covenant of God is unconditional and unilateral with the singular exception of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Why? Why does God do this? So that we might learn, number one, God is the covenant keeper. He's the one who makes the covenant. He's the one who never breaks the covenant. So why the law of Moses? To remind us and show us that man is the covenant breacher. We don't keep covenant well. The law was added, Romans 5, 20 and 21, so the sin would increase so that we could see, whoa, we can't even keep a covenant. 
We can't keep a law. We don't do well with law. God's like, I know. That's why we did one covenant that way. But the rest, the rest is all me, baby. It's all me taking care of what you can't. The Lord alone is sufficient to keep every nuance of his promises. And by the way, I can prove it to you just this year. We've had proof in the skies over Northwest Washington this year. Going back to the Noahic covenant and picking up in verse 12, God says, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. That's generation without end. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. He says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. These are his covenant colors. Are you ready? Jot this down. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Colors of the rainbow. How many colors are in the rainbow? Seven. See, I just want to bring that back up to you. Seven colors of the rainbow, beautiful colors, all laid in together, all flowing one color into the next. And have you seen one this year? How many people have seen a rainbow this year? Do you realize when you saw that rainbow, God was saying, I, I still got it. I'm still keeping covenant. I told you I would. You weren't sure, so I gave you a sign. Here's the sign. Here's your sign. <laughs> and what's, what's funny to me is people will actually say, yeah, 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 sign of a covenant. It's just a sign that happens. I mean, it's just, you know, the light filters through the rain. You get that prism effect and you see that it's just a mirage anyway. It's not really even a real thing. There's no pot of gold because I've looked. It's just a thing, you know. It's scientific covenant. That's interesting. Even in 2019, God is faithful to his very promise and he chose something intentionally that we would be seeing every time there were clouds in the sky and a little bit of sun peeking through. It's not that God was saying, I am going to paint a rainbow in the sky. Every time I paint it, you'll... It, God knew, of course, of course it's scientifically caused by the light filtering through the rain. Yeah, we get that. So did God. He chose as a sign for us something so simple, so constant, and so annual in its appearing that every time we saw it, we go, God's faithful. By the way, has he flooded the earth globally since then? No. So good news. You know, you see the rainbow, we're still good. He says, where did I stop? Verse 15. He says in verse 16, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign, he says a second time, of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, you and I are used to rainbows. We see them all the time, and especially up here. You know, Rachel was talking about the rainbow that she saw, and I actually saw one very similar to this. So I steal a little bit of your thunder or your rainbow. But driving down 20, coming from Mount, Mount Vernon, coming from Burlington back toward Anacortes, was that? Going the other way. Okay, maybe we were passing, because I remember this. A rainbow that started on one side 
and went all the way over to the other side and had a double. And if you've seen that, wow. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's remarkable. And for you and me, we see him and we go, isn't that pretty? But I've seen him before. I mean, how many rainbows have I seen in my life? More than seven, I can tell you. Probably a multiple of seven. I don't know, but I've seen many, many rainbows. And so I'm used to them and they're beautiful. And, and I do think, by the way, followers of Jesus, they're there to remind you God's faithful. Anytime you see a rainbow, praise the Lord. Thank God for his faithfulness. But they're common to us. Why did God establish that sign for Noah and his family? Well, <laughs> think about the first time they saw a cloud after they got off the ark. <laughs> Run! <laughs> Back to the boat, you know? Our staff was, it was funny this morning we were talking about they probably already used some of the wood for a structure. Put it back on, nail it up, Shem. What are you doing? Get aboard. And God said, look, you're going to see this sign because he knew they would. By the way, no rainbows before the flood. The earth wasn't set up that way. The atmospheric conditions were not conducive to a rainbow. It didn't rain. No rainbow. Noah had never seen a rainbow before. The first one appeared in the sky. And you just know, Noah looks up at it and goes, okay, all right, we're good. God said rainbow. Look, kids, rainbow. Honey? No, no get, up, get off the boat. <laughs> but you know what? What if Noah and his family did not believe him? They never would have gotten off the ark. Or they would have camped real close. They would have been working on the ark. Noah would have been an ark builder the rest of his life, preparing and patching and making sure it was airtight and seaworthy. You got to believe and receive the promises of the God. Let me ask, of God. Let me ask you this. Have you received the new covenant? Do you believe the new covenant, first of all? Do you believe the new covenant in his blood that if you put faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved for all of eternity? Do you believe that? A lot of us would say yes. Have you received it? And I think a lot of us would say yes, but then I ask, why do you keep running back to the ark when the clouds threaten your salvation? Why, do, why does a Christian ever say, Boy, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Am I, is, is salvation secure? You've heard me talk about this before. You put faith in Jesus Christ. You believe the promise, receive the promise, and stop going back to the ark. Stop trying to say, you can't save yourself. Jesus already did it. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. Well, then receive it. Just as when you see the rainbow, you know God is faithful. When you see the cross, the sign of that covenant, you know God is faithful. When you walk up here and you take a cracker and a little, you know, tiny little vial of juice, you know God is faithful. You know that your salvation is secure, not because of you, but because of his unconditional grace and love for you. So stay off the ark. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Devil can't do it. I've got you, Jesus says. So for four and a half thousand years now, the rainbow has continued to be this beautiful sign of God's grace in Jesus. And by the way, it contains hints of an even greater grace. Grace. 
The rainbow that we see can, can cause you to think about something else. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was seated on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And see, that's where my mind begins to go these days. Not only is the rainbow a picture of God's faithfulness throughout all history and over all creation, but it reminds me there's a rainbow around the throne. I'm going to see that. You're going to be there. We will experience the rainbow of God's grace. It is a sign of the God of all grace. So yes, it saddens my heart when in our culture there's a cloud on the rainbow. There's a usage not intended, not designed, not inspired by God. A cloud on the rainbow. It's a cloud of pride. It's a cloud of contempt for God's righteousness, not mine, not yours, but it's contempt for a God who established standards of righteousness. A creator who said, I've made you male and female. I've made you this way and I've made the man for the woman and the woman for the man. That's, that's my design. That's my gift to you. That's my creation. And I want you to be right with me. That's what we call righteousness, right? Being right with God. And when the rainbow colors are flown on a flag, declaring the right to whatever kind of sexual behavior I want to engage in, when the rainbow colors are touted this way, you might as well be shaking a fist at the righteousness of God. At the mercy of God. Yeah, whatever. Righteous. I'm right in my own mind. I do what I want to do. And what some fail to understand, please get this, is that the colors of the rainbow that we see in the sky are not only a reminder of grace, they are a reminder of a righteous God who judges. Because the first time the rainbow appeared in the sky, the ground was barely dry. The flood was just over. That specter of judgment. Now the rainbow, recognized, was there. God said, look at that. That's my promise to you. That's the sign that I will not destroy the world in this way again. I will not flood the world again. But when Noah saw the rainbow, first thought is, oh good. Second thought is, oh yeah. Remember what just happened? Remember what we just sailed through? What God saved us from? Oh, his mercy. But hand in hand with God's mercy, it's God's righteous justice. They both are who he is. He is grace and he is truth. He is mercy and he is judgment. And he is perfect in both ways. And when we look back at chapter 8, verse 21, remember he said, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So the rainbow, it reminds us of God's faithfulness not to flood the world ever again, not to destroy the world ever again as he did. But it also serves to remind us of God's justice in dealing with sin, and he will deal with sin. 
Mockers will come with their mocking. But Peter writes, and I remind you, 2 Peter 3, verse 5, that it escapes their notice. They fail to realize, he's saying, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The rainbow is beautiful. It's stunning. And when you get those full earth-to-earth rainbows, you see the full expanse of it in the sky. It is, it's breathtaking. It truly is. But that rainbow followed the cataclysmic judgment. Now, listen to me. This is not hate speech. I am not sitting here condemning those who would fly the flag of pride. I say it honestly from a place of deepest sadness. I don't get angry when I see a gay pride flag. I don't get upset. I don't really even get offended anymore. I just get sad. Because I know what's behind that is either contempt for God or an absolute ignorance to who he is and what he offers and how deep his love. And honestly, when you talk about hate speech, the hate has been aimed at the Lord God. The hate is directed heavenward toward a God whose own covenant colors have been hijacked and dishonored. But check this out. Even if right now the beauty of the rainbow feels commandeered in this generation, even if right now, you know, did I tell you about the suitcase? I'm trying to remember. I told our staff about this. For Father's Day, Cheryl gave me this, the coolest suitcase. It's one of those small, that, that you can take it as a travel carry-on, but it's a, a hard shell suitcase. Really cool. I got the box. It's like, I know you've been wanting a new suitcase. I'm like, cool, I pull it out of the box. It's the only present in our entire marriage that I said I can't. I can't. It's a suitcase of the Beatles. I'm, I'm a Beatles fan, I confess. One of my vices. But of the Magical Mystery Tour. If you know what that album cover looks like, it's a rainbow. It's the colors of the rainbow, and then you see the outline of each one of the four Beatles in the colors. It says Beatles, Magical Mystery Tour, and it's really cool. And 30 years ago, man, I would have taken that anywhere. And I pulled it out of the box, and I I just looked at it, and my heart sank. Because here's my wonderful wife, knowing that I love Beatles music and, and, you know, cool. That'd be fun to have. She's sitting there. Hannah's sitting beside her, and Hannah goes... I told you, Mom. (laughs) She did. Now, Hannah has that suitcase. I don't know how that's going to work, but it just, it makes me sad. But here's the truth, and, and I hope this encourages you. Proverbs 12, verse 19. Got this from my little sister this morning. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. And sometimes we think sin and lies and we think corruption is gonna go on forever. It's not. It's for a moment. Truth is forever. Truth will last and last and last. It's what I said Sunday morning when the lights went out and we didn't have power and I was reminded once again how God transcends everything. And in that wonderful transcendence, you know what? The bow in the heavens is gonna outlast the pride of man. 
the bow in the heavens is going to exist right into the millennial kingdom. Do you realize that for a thousand years, the rainbow is going to be as intended a sign of God's faithfulness? And everyone on earth will not mistake it for something else. They will look up and they will say, that is the promise of a faithful God. The rainbow is going to outlast for a thousand years. Isaiah chapter 54, verse nine, speaking of Israel's future, God said, this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, for I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That rainbow is gonna shine in the kingdom. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that righteousness and truth and grace are everlasting with God. It's only sin that's for a season, and it will pass. Part three, and we'll finish up. Ooh, okay, quickly, part three. The cost of exposure. Verse 18, the cost of exposure. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan, first mention of Canaan in the Bible. We'll talk more about him and them. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated or, or literally scattered, like you scatter seeds so people would be scattered across the earth. Then Noah began farming, verse 20, and planted a vineyard. I guess he was a little tired of the whole ocean thing. <laughs> so he became a land guy and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And it didn't take long for the evil intent of man's heart to re-emerge. Here's Noah, drunken, naked in his tent. And by the way, you might note this, we've seen a lot of first mentions just this evening. This is the first mention of drunkenness in the Bible. Remember what I've told you, that the principle of first mention states you look at the first time a word or a phrase or a concept is mentioned and it gives you information about that very thing. And so here we find that he became drunk and uncovered himself. And it is not the only time in the Bible where drunkenness and nakedness come together. That should tell us something about what drunkenness does. It takes away all the inhibition. We do things we wouldn't normally do. We act in ways we wouldn't act. Some people like that. Some people say, if I'm going out with my friends or I'm, if I'm going to a party, I want to have a beer. I want to have some wine beforehand even because it relaxes me. It helps me chill out. It makes you an idiot is what it does. Because you're going to do stuff you wouldn't do if you were in your clear, sober mind. And you know that, I know that. I'm not telling you anything new here, but check this out. Lamentations chapter 4, verse 23. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of us, but the cup will come around you as well, and you will become drunk and make yourself naked. Vulnerable, exposed. Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 15. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink. Ooh. Mm, okay, let me just throw this out there. But if my drinking is going to cause someone else to drink, maybe I need to rethink my drinking. Maybe it's more important for them that they not drink. Maybe I can handle it, which is, by the way, a lie. But maybe I can handle it. Maybe I know to stop at one drink, but my neighbor doesn't. We need to think more about each other in these 
scenarios. Woe to you, he says, who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. There it is again, drunkenness and nakedness. God says you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Bottom line, biblical principle, drunkenness exposes our foolishness and ultimately our sin. And I was talking to my daughters just about this the other day and, and Naomi was saying, Dad, why do people, why do they like it? What, what, why, what, what's the allure to it? And I'm like, well, you know, it's an acquired taste. If it's an acquired taste, why do we acquire it? This tastes absolutely nasty, but the more I drink it, the more I'm going to like it. I, okay. <laughs> this is, by the way, a stunning contrast to Noah before the flood. It's one of the realities of the Bible. This deals with real people and real life. It's not all cleaned up stories. If I had written it, I would have stopped right after Noah offered worship to God and the offerings and the sweet soothing aroma goes up and I would have just left it there and we would have said, Noah, Noah, he's our guy. And yet the truth is Noah drank, got drunk and naked and stumbled around and passed out in his tent. I, that's the positive side. At least he wasn't out in public. You know. <laughs> So he's in his own tent, but his drunken perversion allowed for a worse perversion that followed, verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Shem and Japheth, they took a garment. They laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, see, I'm in that camp. I, I'm with those who, I, I don't, I never wanted to see my parents' nakedness, ever. <laughs> Please. And when my mom would get a little twinkle in her eye and say, well, you know, when you were conceived, ah, da, 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 da. I know how it happened. You had a glass of orange juice and somehow miraculously I was born. That's it. I don't want to know, I don't want to see, I don't even want to think about what went on up there in that closed, behind that closed door. So I'm, I'm totally with Shem and Japheth. Dude, Ham is over here. <laughs> you know what I just saw? So dad passed out, drunk, nude, so funny. But here's what's weird, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. What? What had he done? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there's something very twisted here. There's the implication, the indication of something perverted that took place here. And it's so bad that Noah, when he wakes from his foolish drunkenness, said in verse 25, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Whoa, 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 Noah, wait a minute, what? <laughs> cursed be Canaan, his grandson. 
Ham's son, Noah, look at it. Oh, maybe he's still drunk. No, no, he knows exactly what he's doing. Cursed be Canaan. Servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. First of all, I wonder what did Ham do that was so bad? Saw his dad. Well, whose fault was that? Noah's the one who got drunk, right? Saw his dad, told his brothers. What did he do? And why does Noah curse the grandson rather than the son? And we got to talk about that on Sunday. So we'll come back to it. But verse 26, I love hearing the awe. I, I get sick pleasure from that. Verse 26, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant, or literally let Canaan be their servant. It's plural. Note that, because we're gonna come back to that too. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be literally their servant. More on Sunday with this too, but keep in mind that all humanity, just remember this, all humanity traces our roots to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They will set up what we're gonna get to a week from, two weeks from tonight, a week from next Wednesday. Next Wednesday is worship, Thanksgiving worship, I can't wait. But two weeks from tonight, we'll get to Genesis 10, which is the table of nations, beginning with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and we'll go through and we'll see how the nations spread out and how different people groups came from these, these three boys. So just remember that, but right here is where the story of Noah ends. Verse 28, Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And that's abrupt. In fact, that's all, this is all that's said about the last third of Noah's life. It's amazing. Two thirds of his life was the run up to the flood. Literally the last hundred years of those first two of the 600 you know, from about the age of 480 to 600, he's building the ark, he's trusting God, he's a preacher of righteousness. Wow, amazing, Noah's all over it. Noah is a righteous dude. Be like him, act like him, preach like him, go Noah. And then the flood happens and they come out of the flood. Noah offers worship, yes, Noah. And the last thing we hear about Noah, and it's all we hear about the last 300 years of his life is drunk and naked in his tent. He had such a great walk with God. And then an extremely embarrassing exposure. And then nothing. Now, I don't know about the rest of Noah's life. I know that the Bible only speaks favorably of him from here on out. Anytime he's mentioned, it's in, it's in honor. It's in righteousness. It's in faith. And I'm thankful for that because faith casts a long, beautiful shadow even over the sins of our life. But I still read this and I think, after the flood, after this awkward mess, we hear nothing else that Noah ever did. Please listen, hear me on this. Don't let what's been uncovered behind you silence the message before you. Noah goes silent. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just God's, you know, perhaps he continued to walk with God, continued to pray, continued to have a wonderful relationship. I don't know. We don't hear about that. All we know is he was a preacher of righteousness. He has this horribly embarrassing situation where he sinned and fell, and then we hear nothing ever again. And that is too often the story on planet Earth. 
It's too often the story that someone follows Jesus and is a preacher and shares the good word and has a horrible fall and that's it. You never hear from them again. And that's tragic because it denies the grace of God. It is God's grace that says to you and says to me, you're gonna sin. You're gonna fall. You're gonna find yourself in embarrassing situations you didn't intend, but there you are. Are you gonna let that define the rest of your life or are you gonna walk in grace? Are you gonna embrace the righteousness that is of God? Let me end here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And I always think of Eric Little there. I think of the scene in Chariots of Fire. I don't know if it's true or not, but in the movie it sure feels true. When he's coming around the corner of the track and his opponent spikes him. And down he goes. And it's slow motion and brutal and you see the blood pouring out of his leg and then he looks around and gets up and off he goes and he's now the last man on the field. But he does not stop. And he runs his heart out and ultimately he wins the race and falls, collapses, hardly able to breathe, running so hard. That's what Paul's talking about. Don't stop running. Yeah, but I was naked in the... Don't stop running. Yeah, but I got drunk. I understand that. You repent, you turn around and you run for righteousness. Yeah, but I've been an unrighteous man. Hey, welcome to the club. We have all been unrighteous people. But our righteousness does not depend on us. It depends on the blood of Jesus that doesn't remember, doesn't just cover us, but cleanses us. So we get up from our failure. We get up from our sin. We say, God, I repent. I'm turning to you and I am running for you again. And we keep on running. And Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, listen, I myself will not be disqualified. Disqualified from what? Eternal life? No. Disqualified from preaching the righteousness of God. And this is my question about Noah, and I'll ask him, did you feel disqualified? Did you stop preaching because you felt disqualified because of your failure before your sons? Parents, if even up to tonight you feel like you have been a failure for your children, repent and walk in the way that is righteous before God. Because our qualification does not come from our behavior. Our qualification comes by faith in the grace of Jesus. So get up and start running. Because what this world needs more than anything else right now is a bunch of preachers of righteousness. Like Noah was. You know what? When I die, I don't want to stand before God and go, yeah, well, for a while I was a preacher of righteousness. I want to say, I was a preacher of righteousness, and then I fell big time. But then I was a preacher of righteousness, and I kept getting up, Lord, because your righteousness covered me. Run to win. Just keep running. Don't fall back. We have a sign, not the rainbow sign, oh, we have that, but we have the cross that assures us 
So as Paul says, live so as not to be disqualified from preaching the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus. Father, I pray tonight that you will take away disqualification. That we as a group of people gathered here would recognize, yes, Lord, I've blown it. Yes, Lord, I, I have failed you. Father, I'm so sorry for my sin. And Lord, I repent. And I'm getting up on the side of the track right now. Beaten and bruised. Lord, in the sight of all your faithfulness, I, I failed. But I'm getting up by your grace. And I pray that you will restore me to a run for your glory, to a run in your righteousness. I pray, Lord, for the strength to stand on truth, compelled by the love of Jesus. We ask tonight, Lord, that your cleansing be felt by all in this place, that your forgiveness would reach, would transcend our failure, would erase whatever sin right now is keeping us from fully living as devoted followers of Jesus. Holy Spirit, cause us to stand tonight before you, clean again, forgiven again, trusting once again in the faithful sign of the cross. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.